John chapter 8, we're going to begin at verse 12. We're kind of picking it up in the middle of a text where Jesus is speaking on the Temple Mount to a crowd of people, which is including religious leaders who opposed him. And in the midst of this speaking on the Temple Mount to this crowd, they brought to him a woman who was taken in adultery. At least that's how we have it in the text that we've sort of received in our New Testaments that we use today. And in the midst of this, they interrupted Jesus' teaching on the Temple Mount by bringing this woman caught in the act of adultery. We talked about that last week in the message that we did on the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. I refer you back to that message. You can catch it online or wherever. But now that interruption has been ended. Jesus, so much care and compassion, took notice of this woman and her need And what he did in the midst of that was he defused that situation, ministered to her in her shame, and now he's getting back to the teaching that he was doing. And the teaching that Jesus did on this occasion, remember, put it in context, it's just after the Feast of Tabernacles. So the ceremonies and the customs of the Feast of Tabernacles are very much in people's minds. As Jesus says, John chapter 8, verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We're familiar that many times in Jesus' teaching, he revealed himself to the people. Matter of fact, you could say that the main topic of Jesus' teaching was himself, which is crazy egotistical, unless you're the Messiah and God. Then if you really are the Messiah and God, Probably the most important thing you can tell through people about is who you are. So already in the Gospel of John, we've seen that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I have living water for you. And now in another dramatic statement, he says, I am the light of the world. What a powerful figure for us. Friends, we all know what light is. And I'm excluding some, some who attend our congregation, who have vision problems, who are blind in some way or another. But, but apart from those exceptions, we who have sight, we understand what light is. You don't have to prove light. When you walk into a room and there's light, you don't have to say, aha, there's light. It's just evident. Light proves itself, not only improving itself, but it also proves that other things are present as well. If you were to walk in this very room and if it was absolutely dark, you you might have trouble making your way around. You might bump your leg into something as you walked around. But once the light comes on, the light immediately reveals itself, but then it also reveals other things around. It helps you to understand the environment around you. Friends, that's just the same way that Jesus Christ works. First, when Jesus appears, he reveals himself. He is self-evident. There's something different about life when Jesus is in the midst. But not only does he reveal himself, he helps us to understand everything else around us. Friends, I don't think you can understand your own life until you understand Jesus. I don't think you can understand the plan that you or that God wants for your life until you understand Jesus. Thing upon thing, line upon line, we understand it all properly as we should when we have the light of Jesus shining in our midst. That's why Jesus could say it. I am the light of the world. Now, understand this. Jesus is speaking to people who at least a segment of which they oppose him. They want Jesus to shut up. They want to discredit him. 
They would like to kill him if they could. They want to silence Jesus. And so when he says, I am the light of the world, they would probably object. So we don't see your light, friends. Just because a person doesn't see the light doesn't mean that the light isn't shining. Maybe you're blind. And that was the situation with these religious leaders. These were religious leaders. These were men who were esteemed as being the high people among the people of Israel as far as a spiritual way of speaking is concerned. And friends, those people were in fact spiritually blind and they were blind because they could not see the light. And that's why Jesus says in verse 12, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. If you can't recognize that I am light, then you're walking in darkness. And friends, isn't it a wonderful thing that if we walk in the light, if we walk close to Jesus, his light fills our life. Um, have you ever flown on an airplane and see the thing where they track the airplane on the little screen? And then when they track the airplane on the screen, they'll have a portion of the globe that's in darkness and one that's in light. And and you can tell if your plane is flying in the correct direction at the correct time of day, you can have your entire flight take place in the daytime. You take off in the daytime, you fly for 15 hours, and you land in the daytime. Say, how did that work? How come it's not night? Because you were following the sun. You were following the light. And friends, if we could follow Jesus that closely, we would always remain in the light. It would be daytime all the time for us, spiritually speaking, in our pursuit of Jesus. That's what Jesus wants us to know. Follow close to me and you will walk in the light. And friends, I'm telling you, we need to walk in the light. We live in dark days. We live in a day where there's a lot of darkness in the culture. There's a lot of darkness in the broader world around us. We need the light of God. And we need it constantly to push away the darkness that surrounds us on every side. Now, as I said, Jesus was speaking this to an audience of which contained some religious leaders who were against him. Not the entire audience, but some of them. But those religious leaders, in this case, the Pharisees spoke against Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Friends, I love to let the movie run in my mind as I read the Bible. There's Jesus speaking with such power, such authority. Wouldn't you have loved to hear the voice of Jesus as he taught? Wouldn't you love to see the expression on the faces of the other people? There's people who have open hearts to what Jesus is saying and their faces are just filled with amazement and wonder. They've never heard somebody speak like this before. And there's other people, those who oppose Jesus, and their faces are twisted in anger and rejection. They're pushing him away. And in the midst of that, as Jesus is teaching, one of these Pharisees, they interrupt him. Don't believe that they waited for Jesus to say, are there any questions among the audience? No, they interrupt it. And somebody shouts out from the crowd, interrupting Jesus. And what do they shout out? Look at it again in verse 13. You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Now, friends, it's true that you can't always rely on what somebody says about themselves. If you're going to hire somebody for your business, don't you look for outside references? You, You don't look for somebody just to say what they would say about themselves. A person's testimony to themselves may not always be reliable. And that's what they're trying to call Jesus on. Jesus just proclaimed that he was the light of the world. The Pharisees couldn't see it. They were blind. And therefore, they're wondering, Jesus, how can you make such a claim? Do you know what they're trying to do to Jesus here? 
They're trying to discredit him as a witness. You know, they were so concerned to shut Jesus up. Jesus, stop speaking. We're going to intimidate you into speaking. That doesn't work. We we, we hope to kill you and and keep you from speaking. That didn't work, at least not up to this point. We we want to do everything we can. Now we're going to try to to cast aspersions on your testimony. Anything we can do to get you to stop speaking. None of it worked, but they tried. But look at Jesus' response in verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Now please notice this. The religious leaders were trying to discredit Jesus. He stood before that crowd on the Temple Mount, essentially saying, I am the light of the world. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God and God the Son. And they cried foul, and they said, no, you're not. Prove it. What you say about yourself isn't enough. They wanted Jesus to take back what he said about himself. And notice Jesus' response in verse 14. First he says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. It's as if Jesus says this, under normal circumstances, a man's testimony concerning himself cannot be established as true. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I am uniquely qualified to give testimony about myself. You know why I'm qualified to give testimony about myself? Because first of all, I know where I came from and where I am going. That's what it says in verse 14. I know where I came from and where I am going. I wonder. I wonder when Jesus came to that knowledge. Did did Jesus understand when he was five years old that he was the eternal son of God? I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe it happened as a very natural maturing process occurred in his life. That that would be the way I'd be inclined to think. But friends, I don't know. The scriptures don't specifically tell us. But this is what we know. That by the time Jesus was an adult, there was no question that he understood where he came from and where he was going. And that gave him the ability to give testimony about himself. But then secondly, in verse 15... Jesus judges righteously. Notice what he says to them. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. I'm different than you, Jesus said. You guys give judgment according just to what you see on the outside. You want to write me off because you don't understand that I came from Bethlehem. You you think I came from Galilee, and so you want to write me off. That's judging according to the flesh. He said, no. I don't judge anyone according to that human criteria, Jesus says. And then thirdly, Jesus can testify about himself because his testimony was fully supported by God the Father. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. In other words... God the Father backs up my testimony. Jesus was absolutely settled and secure in who he was. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was not racked by self-doubts. When the Pharisees said, basically, who do you think you are? Jesus didn't say, well, who am I? Am I the Messiah or not? Am I the Son or God of not? I really don't know. How do I feel today? wasn't anything like that for Jesus. 
Jesus was absolutely settled and secure in his identity. You know, I think there's a pattern for us there as believers. I think God wants us to be settled and secure in who we are as believers. But it's not easy. Maybe, maybe it was easier for Jesus than it was for us. Because I'll tell you where my battle with my identity happens. Friends, listen. I know that Jesus Christ has changed my life. I know that I have believed upon the Son of God and his changing, transforming power has entered my life. I don't doubt that I'm born again by God's spirit. The Bible says that the spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. And I feel very secure in that. But, and I don't think I'm revealing any secrets here, I sin from time to time. In other words, just like any of you, I struggle with sin in my life. And sometimes the struggle with sin makes me wonder about where I am before God and my standing before God. And this thought enters my mind. I don't know if it's ever entered your mind, but it's entered mine. Am I really a transformed man who sometimes sins? Or am I a sinner who is sometimes transformed. You ever have that thought? So what do I do? Well, friends, I don't look to myself for the answer on that. I look to God's word. And as I look to God's word, I see what God says about the believer. I see that God says that the believer is forgiven, that the believer's a new creation, that the believer's adopted, that the believer's received into the family of God. I see that the believer is justified. I see that the believer has a glorious destiny of glorification and resurrection. I see all that and I say, God, I understand that the difficulty awaits me and you're still working in my life, but fundamentally the real me is the one that's made according to the pattern after Jesus Christ. Sometimes I don't see that in myself, but I see it in God's word, and as I see it in God's word and believe that to be true, it becomes more and more real as to who I am. But don't you see an analogy here? I see it. Here are the enemies, the opponents of Jesus, trying to get him to question his identity, and there's all kinds of enemies, so to speak, in my life trying to get me to question my identity. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, which seem to work in a conspiracy against me to make me think that I'm something other than who I really am. Listen, I want to put all those voices to the side and focus in on what God himself says in his word. That's why Jesus could say with such confidence, look at verse 16 again, I am with the Father who sent me. Jesus absolutely settled and secure in his identity, despite every voice that tried to tell him otherwise. And that's a wonderful pattern for believers today. Now he continues on in verse 17, he says this, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus is referring something back in the Old Testament law that says that everything needed to be established by two or three witnesses. So this is what Jesus says. You say, okay, you want two witnesses? I'll give you two witnesses. The first witness is me. 
The second witness is my father in heaven. Listen to what my father says about me. In verse 18, he phrased it like this. I am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. The father also testifies that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God and God the son. Now, let let me tell you this. This establishes a principle that we need to grab a hold of. That Jesus did not merely rely on what he thought about himself. Now, what Jesus thought about himself was perfect because he was the sinless son of God. What I think about myself may not be perfect. So I can't base my identity on what I think about myself. I might think too low or I might think too high. I meet some of those too low Christians sometimes, quite frequently. They think, man, I am nothing. I'm worse than a worm. I am terrible before God. I I, I don't see how God can tolerate me. And, And they need to understand, friend, you are not so low. God needs to lift you up. Understand who you are in Jesus Christ. Then I meet some other brothers and sisters and they err on the other side of it. They think too highly of themselves, don't they? Oh, that can happen, don't they? Man, I'm spiritual hot stuff. I hardly ever sin. Isn't God blessed to have me on his team? You run across that attitude in folks sometimes. And they need to take some humility before the Lord, don't they? Now, if we're going to form our opinions purely on ourselves, it's easy to think too low or too high of ourselves. But if we will allow God the Father to testify to us about who we are, not taking our own opinion, but taking God's opinion of us as expressed in his word, then we're on solid ground. We're not relying upon our own opinions or our own feelings or our own emotions. Now, Jesus could give accurate testimony of himself because he's the son of God. He's the Messiah, but not me. I need to rely on the second witness, God the Father. And Jesus, I can call both to testify, both myself and the Father in heaven. But friends, don't you need that? Don't you need to be aware of the danger of thinking too low of yourself or too high of yourself? Some of us fall into that trap. And what you need to do is let the Spirit of God speak to you through the Word of God. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. And don't judge it just on how you feel at the moment. Now, going on here to verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? Now, I need to stop right there. Do you understand what they're saying to Jesus? I believe and not everybody who studies or teaches this patches agrees with me on this point, but I believe that they were questioning the human parentage of Jesus here. You see, the religious leaders felt like they had a scandal card that they waited to throw out at the appropriate moment. They felt that when their backs were up against the wall with Jesus, they could throw out this argument that would terribly embarrass him and bring up what they thought to be a scandal from his past and that that would discredit who he was. And they're like saying, oh yeah, Mr. Light of the World, why don't you tell us about your father? You see, you and I today, I hope you believe in the virgin birth. The scripture teaches it. That Jesus did not have a human father, but was miraculously conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he had no human father. I I hope you believe it today, because the Bible teaches it, but I don't think I'm going out on a limb to simply say that in Jesus' own day, it was not popularly believed. 
that people said, oh, sure, he had no human father. There were rumors going about in the time of Jesus that his real biological father was a Roman soldier who had relations with Mary. Do you see what they're doing? They are casting aspersions on Jesus's human parentage, basically saying, we don't know who your father is. You are an illegitimate child. To use the word, friends, I'm not using this word for shock value, but just kind of to give the strength of it. You're a bastard. You're illegitimate. What right do you have us to tell anything, Mr. Light of the world? And can you see the sick smiles on the faces of the Pharisees and the religious leaders as they throw down that card? They're like, oh, we've got him here. He's going to be so embarrassed. He's not going to know what to say. I'm banking on Jesus here that he'll know what to say. Verse 19. They said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. I want you to notice something. In verse 19, Jesus answered their supposedly shocking revelation by simply saying, you know neither me nor my father. There are some times where I so desperately wish I could have been present when Jesus said something. I would have loved to see the expression on his face as he spoke on the Temple Mount to these opponents. Wouldn't you love to see how Jesus responded? Did he act all surprised? I didn't think they would bring up my parentage. Oh, a scandal has been exposed. I don't think Jesus was surprised or shocked in the least. I can't wait to get to heaven and look at this. Uh, I believe when we get to heaven... There's going to be video available of all these scenes of the Bible as we can see them. Don't you? You know, in the old days, we used to say it'd be on videotapes. How arcane that sounds now. Now, this first service, I said it was going to be in digital. Somebody came up and kind of said, well, David, I don't think it'd be digital. They'll be using holographic technology. But, but whatever advances beyond holographic, whatever, it'll be the most amazing thing you ever saw in your life. I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to see these Bible scenes take place. And when you do, look for the expression on Jesus' face as those proud religious leaders think, we got him with this one. We got him with this scandal that he doesn't want exposed. I don't think Jesus was affected in the slightest. I think he gave a little smile. Oh, I was wondering when you guys were going to bring that one up. But let me tell you something. He would say in a calm, even voice, You know neither me nor my father. You see, Jesus says, you guys don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know my father. You have no understanding of spiritual things. Why don't you go back to your own scriptures and it'll tell you that the Messiah would be miraculously born of a virgin. You guys are supposed to be religious experts. And you're the ones bringing up questions about my parentage? It's written in your own book. You know neither me nor my father. Now, friends, I think this is a powerful thing for Jesus diffusing the situation. But it also speaks to me. And we're using this analogy, how Jesus was confident in his identity. We also can be confident in my identity. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes what the devil uses to shake my identity is he'll bring up some scandalous situation from the past. Oh, David, you say you're a believer. You say you're a new man in Jesus Christ. It's almost like the devil lays down a trump card. What about this? 
You know what I think is wonderful? I think we could give the same reply to the devil in those situations that Jesus gave to these opponents. You don't know me and the transforming work that God is doing. And more importantly, you don't know our Father in heaven who loves me despite my failings and is genuinely working a work of transformation in my life. We don't have to be afraid when the devil lays out that that sinner card on us. Oh, look at you. Here's a scandal from your past. You can't be who you think you are in Jesus. You know what? We just take that card and we throw it back to him. Matter of fact, sometimes we just say back to the devil, you know what? You didn't even pick the worst scandal. You're laying that on me? God's forgiven me a worse than that. But you see, here's the thing. Even though I have sinned greatly before God, I have a greater Savior. He's greater than all my sin. And the work of transformation that he's done in my life and in yours, it's greater than any scandal of the past. He goes on here in verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you'll seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, would he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. Jesus said, matter of fact, you guys are so out of touch with me that I'm going to leave this earth. I'm going to pay that ultimate price on the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And when I go to heaven, you guys won't be able to go there. Where I go, you cannot come. By the way, don't, don't think that Jesus was excluding these men from heaven. They didn't want to follow Jesus in their lifetime. Why would they ever want to follow him to heaven? Please, friends, if you have no interest in following Jesus right now, why would you want to follow him to heaven? Jesus says, why don't you walk in the light now? Why don't you follow me? Why don't you follow the one who said, I am the light and follow me in the light. You'll never walk in darkness. And then you'll follow me to heaven as well. But if you have no interest in following him on earth, why would you follow him to heaven? Now, when Jesus said this, when Jesus said, you and I have different destinations eternally, notice how they replied, verse 22, they said, will he kill himself? Friends, this was a grave insult to Jesus. First, they tried to insult his parentage. Secondly, they're trying to insult his destiny. They're saying, we think, Jesus, you're going to go to hell. In the Jewish thinking of that time, a person who committed suicide went directly to the lowest depths of hell. Now, friends, I need to take pains and point out, that was the Jewish thinking of that time. That's not what the Bible says. Let me take a little side point to speak on this. There are people who are very troubled by the thought that suicide is the unforgivable sin. And if a person commits suicide, it automatically means that they are in hell whether or not they ever trusted in Jesus or not. Let me tell you something. There are church traditions that say that, but the Bible does not say that. The Bible does not say that suicide is the unforgivable sin. The Bible says that the unforgivable sin is living your life in persistent rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the unforgivable sin. And it is possible for someone who's genuinely a believer to be in such a state 
such a cloud of depression or discouragement or darkness that even though they are a believer, they are driven to do a terrible thing and that thing in itself is sin. We do not deny that. But friends, it is not the unforgivable sin. And nobody should be burdened by the thought that just because a person committed the sin of taking their own life, that that excludes them from heaven. No, if they have trusted in Christ, then there's still heaven open to them. But in any regard, that's not what the Jews of Jesus' day said or believed. They basically said, oh, okay, Jesus, you and I have different destinies. You must be going directly to hell as a suicide. Jesus is going to speak to this in verse 23. He says, and he said to them, You are from beneath, I'm from above. You are of the world, I'm not of the world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see how direct Jesus is? He's saying, please, religious leaders, I plead with you. You are on a road to destruction and that day of grace will not last forever. Now is your time to choose. Now is your time to receive me as light of the world, as the bread of life, as the Messiah of God. But if you continue to reject me, your destiny is set. Friends, this is a difficult thing to talk about. About the idea of dying in your sin. Verse 24, if you do not believe that I am you will die in your sins. Friends, the Bible speaks of the concept of those who die in the Lord. Isn't that a precious idea? To die in the Lord. To be received from this life to the next in the loving embrace of Jesus. That's a precious thing. You don't want to die in your sins. You want to die in in the Lord. But when we pass from this life to the next, the course is set. The time for choosing is over. It's one of two destinies for us. And Jesus pleaded with these religious leaders and he pleads with us today, follow me. Don't reject me. Embrace me. Come to me. I am the light of the world and be preserved from the wrong destiny. Let's finish up with these last three verses of this section. Verse 25, excuse me, not the last three. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Verse 25. And they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Notice the third question they asked. The first question they asked is, who's your father? The second question they asked is, are you going to commit suicide? The third question they asked is, who are you? Friends, to ask Jesus, who are you? If it's asked with a sincere heart, it's a beautiful question. If you don't know who Jesus is and you sincerely want to know, I invite you to just get down on your knees before God, open up your Bible, start reading the Gospels, and just say, Jesus, who are you? Would you reveal yourself to me? You ask that question with a sincere heart, and God will reveal himself to you. But not every question is a sincere question. And sometimes people ask questions not to receive Jesus, but to resist him, to push him away, 
And that's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. They asked, who are you? And Jesus says, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. Are you expecting me to give a different answer to you? I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. I am God the son. I am the light of the world. And I know that they were blown away by such grand claims. But there it was. They were either going to receive it or reject it. Now we get to those last few verses. Verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. And as He spoke these words, many believed in Him. Now notice this first Jesus says, You'll understand when I am lifted up. Do you know what Jesus meant by that? He didn't mean to be lifted up by the applause of the crowds. He didn't mean to be lifted up on a glorious throne. He meant to be lifted up on the cross. When I do my great work to rescue sinful humanity on the cross, when I rise from the dead after that, when I am ascended to heaven after that, when I am lifted up, then you will believe. And you know what? I am absolutely convinced that some of those Pharisees who questioned Jesus on that day later came to faith after Jesus did his work on the cross. I absolutely believe it. You know what I think too? I can't prove it, but you can't prove it not. I believe that there was a young rabbi among those Pharisees questioning Jesus on that day. That young rabbi was a man named Saul of Tarsus. From what you know about Saul of Tarsus, don't you think he would be in the mix? If there was a controversy going on in Jerusalem, don't you think he'd be at the middle of it? Don't you think maybe he was the one asking these questions of Jesus? It's almost as if I think of Jesus looking in the eyes of this man, Saul of Tarsus, and he says, when I am lifted up, then you'll believe. Then you'll see. And that man later came to glorious faith in Jesus Christ after Jesus had been crucified and was raised from the dead. But Jesus points out, he says, listen, the Father has not left me alone. The, the, the unity between the Father and Son, it will continue. Despite all your accusations, I am as close to the Father as ever. Why? Verse 29, because I always do the things that please him. Can you imagine Jesus saying such a thing? Can you imagine a man claiming to be sinlessly perfect in front of people who hated him? Imagine a politician doing that today. Imagine a politician with a lot of controversy swirling around them and standing before and saying, I always do the things that please God. Can you imagine the questions from the reporter? Well, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? Jesus could confidently say it. You know why? Because he was the sinless son of God. And as a result of it all, look at verse 30. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. The light of the world was shining and many people could see, and many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some did not. Those religious leaders, many of them did not, but some came to faith. And friends, it doesn't bother me today, that argument that many people use. They say, if Christianity is so true, why doesn't everybody believe it? Have you ever heard that argument? Friends, here's the thing to remember. They rejected Jesus in his very own day. Why would we expect that everybody would, expect him, would accept him today? If they rejected him back then, surely some are going to reject him today. But I don't want to put my focus on the some who reject. Did you see what it said in verse 30? It said, many believed in him. I hope you're one of the many. 
I hope you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that you said, God, I entrust my eternity not unto you, excuse me, not unto me, but unto you. I don't trust in myself or my own works or my own abilities. I trust in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did to rescue me. That's what the light of the world does. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would shine more powerfully among us as ever as the light of the world. But Lord, I also pray, I pray that that light that you have would shine upon our very identity as men and women who follow Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to just take comfort in the fact that the same Jesus who was so settled, so secure in his identity before you, that same Jesus dwells in me and dwells in all of us who believe. So Jesus, would you work that in us? Would you work your light, your settled security and your identity, work it in us, Lord, so that we can stand against every opposition that the world brings against us. We love you. We praise you. We give you our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.